Hi Stonebridge. After so many weeks of being apart, we cannot tell you how excited we are at the prospect of finally being able to come together as one family in one place to make much of our Lord. Uh, I have been so looking forward to this. And yet we also recognize that there's a lot of emotions and opinions about this whole reopening process. Some of you are so ready to be here that you would have been here weeks ago if that was an option. Others are still weighing how soon they feel comfortable coming back. And so we've, we've wanted to approach this process from a posture of mutual respect and, and humility. Uh, it's not about who's right and who's wrong in this, but how we show love to one another as we come back together. And so we've been working hard on a process that we hope is both gradual and gracious. Those have been our two goals, something that's gradual and gracious. So first, it's gonna be gradual. Our first time coming back together in the building is going to be our congregational meeting on May 31st at 1.30 p.m. Uh, this is one of our biannual meetings where we as a church family, our membership, come together to make decisions about uh, uh, some of the operating procedures of our church, things like budget and so on. And if you're a member, you should have received information about that already. But that's gonna be our first time back in the building. We're going to live stream that meeting also, recognizing not everybody's gonna be ready to come back on the 31st. Uh, but that'll be our first step. Uh, we will then resume our gathered worship on Sunday mornings on Sunday, June 7th, at both the 9 a.m. service and the 1045 service. And we cannot wait for that to happen. Um, it's going to be a shorter service for, for a while. We wanna create a little bit more time and space in between services for people to be able to come and go and not create such large crowds in the lobby and in the worship center. Um, it's also gonna have a little bit different seating arrangement. So based on some of the feedback we've received, we're going to set the sanctuary, the worship center at about 50% capacity uh, for seating. Um, and then the last thing you should know about the month of June is that there's not gonna be any classes for a little bit, um, whether adult or student or nursery. Uh, we encourage you to worship together as a family, to bring your children, but to, to worship in the worship center together. Uh, and then Lord willing, in the month of July, we hope to relaunch some of those classes and ministries. So it's gonna be gradual. We're gonna take it step by step. But the other goal is that we want it to be gracious. We want it to be filled with compassion, uh, with love for one another. And so first and foremost, uh, we're talking about health and safety. When you are ready to return and worship together, we want you to feel comfortable and safe doing that. And so we are working on what might be described as a contact-free environment, uh, at least through June, maybe longer. So things like uh, we're gonna have greeters and ushers holding doors so that not everybody has to touch those doors. We're not gonna pass an offering plate. We're gonna have boxes in the back of the room. We're gonna change the way that we serve communion. Um, we're gonna be cleaning in between services. We're gonna have hand sanitizer pumps available in the lobby and in different locations. Uh, we'd ask that you avoid handshaking and hugs for a season. Um, and of course, you know, if you are sick or if you've been sick recently, we would ask you to, to stay home and worship with us online instead. But here's a couple things we're not gonna be doing. Uh, we're not going to require masks 
for people uh, to attend or require our volunteers. We recognize there's a lot of uh, discussion and opinion about the efficiency or safety of masks. We think that's a personal decision for you and your family. So if you feel comfortable uh, wearing a mask, we encourage you to do so, but we're not gonna require that for people. Uh, the second thing we're not gonna do is we are not going to become the social distance police. Uh, we are all in this together. We're, we've all been getting used to this process. No one's gonna walk around with a tape measure, making sure there's six feet in between, but we do ask that we work hard to create a socially distant environment as we worship together, out of love for one another, out of love. Um, and then the last part of a gracious re-entry is what's going on in our hearts. Uh, we want to, uh, again, to approach this from a posture of love, from appro to approach this uh, by guarding our unity. Our unity is not in our opinion about coronavirus. Our unity is secured by the blood of Christ. That's what brings us together. That's what makes us a family. And so as we come together, we want to do so with humility and guarding our unity uh, one of the verses that comes to mind with that is Romans 12:10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection, with family affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We want to outdo one another in showing honor. So not just to show honor, but to, to really go above and beyond in how we love and, and come alongside each other. Because again, our union is in Jesus. Our hope, our message is Jesus. He's what brings us together, and we cannot wait for that to happen. So as you're comfortable, uh, we look forward to you rejoining us. Uh, June 7th is going to be our first worship service together. May 31st will be our, our congregational meeting. Um, we are ready. We're waiting. We're praying for you, and we look forward to seeing what God's going to do in the months ahead. Hi, my name is Katrina Christensen. I'm a member here at Stonebridge, and I also am on staff. Today we're going to be reading Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 29 through 40. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not say as you do. 
So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kermimim with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home and Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Stonebridge. Pastor Brandon here as we continue our series in the book of Judges. An unfortunate but uh, somewhat consistent reality of life in a fallen world is that every now and then some of us will, um, all of us at some point in time, will find ourselves in a situation that can only be described as desperate. Uh, we we uh, trouble hits. We find ourselves with our backs against the wall. We don't know what to do. We can't see a way out. And so we do something that ordinarily would be absolutely crazy, but seems like the only solution in the moment. We even have a phrase for it. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And I think of uh, early on in our marriage, uh, Carissa and I, when we didn't have hardly anything at all. We, we struggled quite a bit financially. So uh, planning a grocery store visit by going through the couch cushions looking for loose change is not a normal activity. It may look silly and foolish to others looking on, but desperate times call for desperate measures. Or cashing in a savings bond to pay a utility bill, or racking up credit card debt on gasoline and groceries. That's not a sound financial plan. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And, and sometimes those desperate measures work out. The risk finds a reward. Uh, but often, they simply make things worse in the long run. 
the plan backfires or what was designed to be like a, a temporary measure becomes a, a long-term pattern that just makes things worse and worse and worse. And for the Christian, each desperate situation brings with it a, a particular temptation of losing sight of God of losing our understanding, our vision of who He is, letting our circumstances cloud out our vision of Him. And instead of trusting Him and taking Him at His word, taking matters into our own hands. Well, in the book of Judges that we've been working through, we have uh, seen Israel regularly find themselves in what can only be described as a desperate situation. As they struggle to be faithful to their covenant, as they constantly give their affection and and allegiance to the false gods of their neighboring nations, God allows them to experience the result of their sin. He gives them over to their enemies. Uh, They are allowed to be overrun and oppressed by foreign enemies. And that desperation seemed to reach a fever pitch in last week's story. Whereas Israel kind of gave way to the entire pantheon of gods of the surrounding nations, and God finally says to him, I will save you no more. Now, as Keith showed us last week, by the end of that passage, even though God would have been fully justified to, uh, to do away, to wash his hands of his rebellious people, he revealed his mercy again. He became impatient with the misery of Israel uh, that they had brought upon themselves. And so, you know, God is still at work, and yet Israel doesn't necessarily know that in this moment. For as much as they know, God has told them He will save them no more. And so, where our story picks up in chapter 10, verse verse 17, they find themselves in quite possibly the most desperate situation in the book so far. Verse 17, then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzpah and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Who is the man? Notice the difference there. In the past in this book, Israel had called on God when they were in trouble. In the past, God was the one who raised up the judge for them. But now, with their backs against the wall and seemingly no other way out, and this sense that God's not going to deliver them anymore, they take matters into their own hands, and they make a desperate call. They summon Jephthah to be their judge and their leader. So, what makes Jephthah such a desperate measure, apart from the fact that it's impossible to spell his name and very difficult to pronounce it? Uh, Well, the first few verses of chapter 11 give us a little bit of background about just who this guy is and his less than ideal relationship with the people of Gilead. So, first, he has a reputation as a mighty warrior. Uh, That's a good thing in this situation, his military expertise. The problem is that he earned that reputation as an exile and a bandit. Uh, Because he was the son of a prostitute, his father Gilead was not faithful to his wife, Uh, and so his siblings 
drove him from the land, lest they had to actually share their inheritance with this guy. So, so Jephthah is a reject. He's an outcast. And as an outcast, it, it shouldn't surprise us that other outcasts kind of gravitated toward him, or as the narrator puts it, other worthless fellows uh, collected around him and went out with him. That's the same word that the narrator used to describe the thugs that Abimelech hired back in chapter 9 when he was trying to take out his family. So the implication here is that Jephthah made his living and gained his military reputation as a mercenary, as a pirate, basically. And so now it comes to it for the leaders of Gilead. They find themselves in a desperate situation with the Ammonites, the, the neighboring nation on the east, making war against them. And the one man they feel might possibly be able to deliver them, not only does he have somewhat of a questionable reputation, but he's someone they allowed to be kicked out of his family and run out of town years earlier. So if they make Jephthah uh, their leader, not only are they going to have to eat crow for not protecting him and, and showing him kindness as they should have when he was mistreated, they have to make an outcast their new leader. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And, and so they summon Jephthah and they make a deal in verses 4 to 11. Now, Jephthah is understandably skeptical about this whole invitation. He says in verse 7, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? I mean, he recognizes the self-serving, patronizing posture of the Gileadites, that, that we don't really want you unless we actually need you. I mean, this is like the, the cool kids at school who make fun of the nerds and push them away and won't include them until they realize they need help with their homework or something like that, and so they invite them back in. And Jephthah is not being fooled. But to their credit, the Gileadites pretty much own it. Uh, verse 8, this is why we've turned to you now, that you may go out with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We need your help, and we're willing to pay. That's, that's what they're saying. We're willing to put you in charge, not just for this battle, but for good. They pledge their loyalty to Jephthah in exchange for his protection. Desperate times, desperate measures. And, and yet there's this ugliness going on in, in the story. Uh, sometimes desperate situations cause us to use people as a means to our own ends. That's what's going on here. Uh, you know, we find ourselves in this place where we need so badly to get out of a jam that we will, that those around us, uh, they cease to be people who, who should be known and loved and honored, and instead they become objects to be used for our own purposes a means to our own ends. You know, maybe we, we find ourselves in a desperate situation and so it, we steal someone's idea or we steal their stuff or something. We use those around us to get ahead rather than knowing, loving, and honoring them as they deserve. We, uh, we use people. And, and the Gileadites, that's what they're, they're doing in this passage. They may well be owning their wrong to an extent, but it's only for their own ends. They're only, they would not be calling on Jephthah if they weren't in need. 
Uh, They're using Jephthah to get protection. And even Jephthah seems to have his own agenda. Vindication, restoration, coming home and being head. He gets something big out of this deal, which, after all, he is a mercenary. That kind of makes sense. And so Jephthah and Gilead strike a deal. They mutually use each other. Jephthah agrees to go to war, to become head. The people agree to make him head over Gilead and to ensure that nobody tries to take advantage of the other in this, Jephthah calls on the Lord as witness to the deal because it's a risky move for both of them. I mean, if Gilead made such a blundering mistake last time, what me, what's to stop them from doing it again? And it's not particularly wise to hand the keys of a city over to a a formerly exiled mercenary. There's a lot of risk in this situation. However, in this particular case, the Lord was in it. Surprisingly, the Lord was in this, not because they called on Him and asked for His help, not because they actually deserved it, but because, as we saw last week, His mercy is greater than our sin. His mercy is greater than our sin. He was impatient with the misery of his people. And so he uses Jephthah to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. But the victory that Jephthah is about to achieve is quickly overshadowed by his own act of desperation. One that undoes for himself and his family the very peace that he was longing to secure and so in verses 12 to 40, we read the, st- the, the story of Jephthah's desperate measure. Uh, his leadership starts off remarkably well. Uh, he's, he's a negotiator. He brokered a deal with Gilead uh, to come back into the fold and, and to lead his people. And so now his first act as leader is to try and broker a deal with the Ammonites. He starts with diplomacy rather than with war which in many ways makes him stand out among the judges. So in verse 12, we didn't read this part, but hopefully you had a chance to read it beforehand or or can read it afterwards. Uh, In verse 12, Jephthah sends sends messengers to the king of Ammon to figure out what exactly his complaint is against Israel. And the king responds by accusing Israel of stealing his land centuries ago. So verse 13 Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan, those are rivers, now therefore restore it peaceably. That's the king's complaint. Now the problem with the king's claim is that it is completely false. This is fake news. The the land in dispute never actually belonged to the king of Ammon or to the people of Moab, whom the king of Ammon now seems to oversee. And and so Jephthah sends a response. He makes an appeal to this king, trying to kind of end the dispute without having to go to war, and, and makes his case that Israel's actually the one who's in the right here, and that the king of Ammon is wrong by attacking them. So first he makes a historical argument in verses 14 to 22. He basically retells the events of Numbers 21. 
that when Israel came out of Egypt, they never took any land from Ammon or Moab. In fact, they went out of their way to be deferential to them. They asked for permission to pass through their land. And when they didn't give that permission, they actually went all the way around it instead. When they came to the land of the Amorites, another people group who did actually own the land in question here, they asked to do the same. We just want to pass through so we can get where we're going to the land the Lord is giving us. But the king of the Amorites, not only did they say, no, you can't pass through, they sent armies to attack God's people Israel. And it was only then that the Lord defeated the Amorites and gave their land to his people. Ammon and Moab had absolutely nothing to do with this story or these historical events. And, and so in that light, Jephthah makes a second point. He makes a theological argument. Since it was the Lord who gave uh, this land to Israel, he appeals to the king of Ammon to respect what the Lord has done in verse 25. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Are you then to take possession of the land? I mean, you've got the land your God Chemosh gave you. Isn't that enough? Why do you try to steal ours? And then finally in verses 25 to 26, he makes an argument from precedence. Balak, uh, the great king of Moab, uh, he, as, as this example, never took up arms against issue with Israel's possession of the land of the Amorites. And, and if no leader of Ammon or Moab has brought this up for 300 years, why is this all of a sudden now a big deal? Jephthah is a pretty amazing negotiator. He'd make a good lawyer. And so he rests his case in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, Decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. He puts the result in God's hands. So you would think with such a powerful argumentation that the crisis would be averted, right? Well, verse 28, the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. And so it is that now Jephthah finds himself in a desperate situation. His inability to strike a deal with the king of Ammon means that war is at the gates and everything is on the line for him personally. Jephthah needs this win. The, the rejection of his youth has finally been overcome, but only if he defeats the Ammonites. Now, you keep reading the story and you find out very quickly that, that the reality is that everything Jephthah needs for this victory, the Lord supplies. Verse 29, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God clothes him in his own strength with his own presence to lead him to victory. But what if it's not enough? What if it's not enough? This is a desperate time. I mean, Jephthah's finely head. He cannot bear to lose that. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And so Jephthah, the negotiator, tries to make a deal with God. And he does it in about the ugliest way possible. 
In verse 30, Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. In order to secure God's favor, Jephthah offers to sacrifice a person to him. He pledges to sacrifice a person to God. This does not make any sense, right? Uh, I mean, Jephthah started really well with his diplomacy. He seems to know the Torah. He just preached from Numbers 21. Would he not know that something like this is totally against God's law, God's revealed will? This will not secure anything for him. Uh, Maybe he's thinking of an animal, right? Animal sacrifice was something God did instruct. But but it's a really strange vow, if you think about it that way, that why would Jephthah anticipate an animal coming out of his house to greet him? And it's a pretty big gamble that a person wouldn't show up instead. Uh, Maybe he was talking about devoting someone to the Lord in uh, perpetual service, um, service in the temple or something like that. That's, That's one way that some will understand the text. But as I have wrestled with this story... I'm increasingly convinced that, that Jephthah is pledging to sacrifice a human being uh, and, and thinking that that's going to secure a military victory. He certainly wasn't expecting it to be the person that it ended up being. He probably thought it would be a servant or something like that. But he's trying to make a deal with God and manipulate his favor. This is his desperate measure. And so you have to ask, where in the world does this come from? Like, this does not come from the Lord or from his law. Well, simply put, this is syncretism. This is mixing religions. In his desperation to defeat the people of Ammon, he ends up treating the Lord like the God of Ammon and offering, trying to buy him with a human sacrifice, uh, which... When you step back and think about it, this shouldn't surprise us at all in the book of Judges, that someone would do something so grotesque and stupid. I mean, we were just told at the beginning of chapter 10 that Israel was in bed with all of the gods of their surrounding neighbors, the God of Syria, the God of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, gods who could be bought with human sacrifices, or so their followers thought. Sometimes desperate situations cause us to try and manipulate God rather than trust Him. Sometimes desperate situations cause us to try and manipulate God rather than trust Him. I mean, sure, God has, has promised to do, uh, to work all things for our good and for His glory. That's His promise. But what if He doesn't? What if his definition of good isn't the same as mine. We think that we know what's going to be the best outcome, and so we can't actually risk entrusting the results to God, so we functionally abandon the gospel of His grace and revert to a pagan works righteousness. We try to buy God's favor. 
We think that if we can perform well enough for him, we can guarantee his approval, his blessing. And, and that's no different from any uh, of what's going on in our hearts today as fallen human beings. Obviously, none of us are pledging to sacrifice our children literally. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not trying to buy God's favor through doing what we think will be a religious good work for him or that we're not doing that at the expense of our loved ones, of our family members. You know, especially when we find ourselves in that situation where our back is against the wall. We do not see a way out. We have nowhere else to turn. Well, maybe if I bargain with God, we can get through this. If I do something really good for him. And, and, it, and if, when we find ourselves thinking that, right? When we find ourselves thinking, well, uh, if I just, you know, do a better job reading my Bible this week, and if I you know, can do something that will serve God, then he's sure to get me out of this fix. We have abandoned the gospel of grace, and we have reverted to a pagan works righteousness. That is not depending on God's word or his mercy. And, and so often we, we get there because we allow our circumstances to cloud our vision of who God really is, who God has revealed himself to be. Instead of seeing God as this gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a, a God who has revealed both his glory and his grace in the face of his son Jesus, we allow our vision our understanding, our relationship to get mixed with false ideas of who God is, of how he works. And so we end up treating him like a false God who, who has to be bought or impressed. But the grace of God is enough. Jesus is enough. His perfect righteousness, his perfect patience, his perfect love, his presence, his kindness and mercy, you do not have to buy off Jesus. He has already shed his blood to purchase you. And if only Jephthah in all his insecurity could have seen that in God, could have seen his mercy and grace, instead he takes his desperate measure. He makes his vow, and it ends up with disastrous results. You know, as you're reading through the story, it's amazing that, that the battle that this whole chapter is leading up to uh, only takes up two verses in the story. That's it. It happens, and then it's over. And it's immediately overshadowed by the tragic, gut-wrenching results of Jephthah's vow. Verse 34, Jephthah came home at Mitzpah, came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, just like Miriam in Exodus 15, celebrating God's victory, right? And, and we're told the narrator tells us she was his only child. In case that doesn't register, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And Jephthah's reaction reveals both the re very real loss that he experiences, but also the shallowness 
of his character. I mean, first, he essentially blames his daughter. Like, look at what he says in 35. You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. Now, obviously, he's, he's crushed over losing her, but he's more focused on his loss than on hers. And then, even more tragic, he actually carries out the vow. There's no honor to God in keeping a vow that breaks his law and that transgresses his image. Like, this is not something to be commended or celebrated here. This is child abuse of the worst kind. And, and the most heartbreaking part of it all is that his daughter graciously goes with it. Like, she's the one we should be weeping for in this situation. She's the one whose friends gather and weep with her. She's the one whom Israel weeps for and laments regularly year after year. She is the victim in this story. But it is a, it is a tragic loss all around. The, the very peace that Jephthah thought he could secure for himself and his family by buying God's favor, he has now sacrificed and lost everything through his own self-centered manipulation. And the story doesn't get better after that. Uh, the story of Jephthah concludes at the first part of chapter 12 uh, with another desperate situation, this time from the tribe of Ephraim, and much more briefly here. So we've met Ephraim before in this book. Uh, if you'll remember back in chapter 8 when Gideon did not invite them to join the war uh, against uh, the Midianites, they came and, and approached Gideon and uh, basically were upset that they didn't get invited to the party. Well, they do the exact same thing uh, to Jephthah in chapter 12. Their honor is threatened because they didn't get an invitation. And, and there also appears to be some sort of long-standing grudge between Ephraim and Gilead. And so with their honor insulted, they make what proves to be a desperate move. They invade Gilead. They don't just send an envoy. They, they arm themselves and show up and then threaten to burn Jephthah's house down over him. And the connotation of that threat could not have landed well on Jephthah. The house that he now finally just has in the midst of his hometown, from which his daughter came out and then was burned with fire. Like this is poking the bear in a really stupid way. And, and so rather than being diplomatic like Gideon had been, and, and rather than being diplomatic like Jephthah had been with Ammon, uh, he goes to war. He goes straight to war on God's own people. Not against the, the foreign nations, but on God's own people. This is another desperate measure. He captures the fords of the Jordan, uh, where Ephraim would kind of cross into their land. And then he singles the Ephraimites out uh, by doing a little test on their accent. He singles them out in order to slaughter them. Uh, they can't pronounce the word shibboleth correctly. And it's kind of like if you ever visit Massachusetts and try and pronounce some of the town names there, like the locals can tell immediately you're not from around here, right? There's a town that looks like it should be pronounced Worcester. It's Worcester. Or, or another town called what looks like Leominster. It's Lemonster. 
And, and if you say, hey, how long have you lived in Leominster? They know you're not from there, right? And, and our, our friends in Massachusetts love to make fun of my failed pronunciations when we lived there. But that's, that's his strategy. He uses their accent to single them out in order to exterminate the tribe of Ephraim. And of course, he doesn't complete it, but he makes a big dent in it. It's horrible. But one of the saddest parts of Jephthah's legacy is not only that he could not tell the difference between Israel's God and the God of the nations, but that by the end of his story, we can no longer tell the difference between God's people and the world. He had more compassion on Ammon than he did on his own brothers and sisters in Ephraim. And God's people are now declaring war on each other. That when the book started, they were declaring war on those nations that were invading them and, and had not been driven out. Now they're just going after each other. Sometimes desperate situations cause us to react in ways that are indistinct from the world. Sometimes desperate situations cause God's people to react in ways that are indistinct from the world. This is tragic. We, we find ourselves under attack or we feel as though things are, are spinning out of control. And so instead of trusting God and taking him at his word that he's somehow going to work all of this out, we take matters into our own hands. We bully or we threaten. We, we grasp for control and we rally the troops. We give way to a self-preservation that leads to infighting rather than joyful unity in Christ. We lose sight of God and his grace and our union with one another. And, and all of a sudden, we no longer treat each other as brothers and sisters, but like enemies. Friends, this breaks God's heart. This is not what Christ shed his blood for. He spilled his blood to deliver us from that kind of sin, to set us apart from the world, to make us one in him. We will have disagreements in the church. We will not always see things the same way. But when that happens, do we react like the world, posturing and jockeying for position and power? Or do we love one another with brotherly affection, taking sin seriously and taking grace just as seriously? Do we outdo one another in showing honor? Don't let a seemingly desperate situation cloud your vision of God, but trust him to keep his word for our good and for his glory. I want to close with some wisdom from Barry Webb. He writes, There is a great difference between the kind of religion that rises from our own insecurity and desire to get God to meet our need and that which is based on God's own revelation of himself. The former is a reflection of our sinful natures. The latter is a gift of the God who made us and has reached out to us in Christ. The former conceives of our relationship with God in terms of negotiation. God gives us what we want from him in return from, for actions that please him. We get 
in proportion to what we give. True religion, on the other hand, understands that our relationship with God is based on His generosity and free grace. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer God that can make Him love us more than He already does. Our true need is for His forgiveness and adoption as His children. And all that is necessary to have this need met is faith in God and what He has already done for us in Christ. This is a true vision of God. A God who is with us and for us in Christ in every situation. A God who has answered our sin and idolatry through the cross. A God who always keeps His word and who will be faithful to fulfill Every promise in the end, a day when we will feast and weep no more. This is our God. Let's trust Him together. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we confess our great need for You. Lord, we confess that there is nothing in our hands that we bring. Simply To the cross we cling. And Lord, we praise you that that is enough. That you are not asking us to buy your favor or to manipulate your attention. Lord, help us see how destructive it is when we try and do that. Help us see you clearly in whatever situations we find ourselves in. To see a true vision of of the God who has revealed himself to us in Christ, that we would fall upon you in trust and faith to know that you will keep your word and you will carry us forward, Lord, for our good and for your glory. And Lord, we pray that that you would do that again in every situation. I think of our graduates who are celebrating uh, such a strange celebration right now. Uh, this week and in the surrounding weeks. Lord, thank you for the hard work and effort that has led up to this day. Be with each graduate, high school, college, as they lament the loss of, of what that celebration should have looked like. But be with them in the midst of it to keep their eyes on you, to know that you see them, even if all of this looks and feels different. Lord, we, we praise you um, for other things that are going on in, in the life of our church, Lord. We, we praise you for the new life uh, for um, Bianca Ruth, who was born to Josh and Alondra Bales recently. Lord, would you bless that little girl and uh, help her grow in faith in the Lord. We celebrate that, God. Oh, Lord, we praise you for a new wedding happening this afternoon. Lord, thank you for Dean Hartman and Rachel Munger. Uh, whom you in your providence have brought together. Lord, may this be a joyful day and a joyful union um, lavished with your grace. Lord, we think of those who are in need of healing among us. For Carol Swore, for John Loeffler, for Mike Merritt and Chris Page, for Izzy Vigil, for Patrita Chavez. Would you meet each of them in their need and others, Lord? We think of our brother Derek Boots as he prepares to be deployed for military service at the end of this month. God, would you be with him and Mariah? Uh, Lord, thank you for his service to his country. Keep him safe while he is abroad. 
Be with Mariah and their girls while he's away. Keep the whole family close to you during this time. And we thank you for our missionaries and outreach partners who have uh, kept putting one foot in front of the other in service of your kingdom through this season, Lord. Lord, thank you for their example and thank you for their work. We think of Luke and Joy Cleveland today and their work with the navigators here in Cedar Rapids. Um, God, would you give them grace this summer as they raise support, as they coach new staff, as they continue to connect with students. Lord, in all of these things, may our hearts be fixed on you. May our eyes be filled with a vision of who you truly are. May we trust you to keep your word, even as we look forward to the day when all of the brokenness of this world will be done away with. Everything will be made new, and we will rest and rejoice in your presence forever. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.